The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Now, if you will, would you look with me in Romans chapter 5. This is God's infallible, inerrant word that is read in your hearing. And we're going to read verses 18 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. Please be seated. One of the great blessings that I have been able to enjoy in my life, one of the great blessings I've been able to enjoy is uh, having uh, godly mentors, pastors, who have guided me in the call to ministry and in uh, and in doing ministry. And one of the very first ones, uh, years and years ago, I mean, right as I was coming into ministry, was uh, Reverend Al Martin. He was a very, very good friend and mentor in the Word. And I'll never, I, this, this week I was reminded and my, I was personally reminded of a question that I asked uh, Al early on in the ministry. I said to him, Al, um, you know, a man plans his way, but God directs his steps. So it's appropriate for us made in the image of God to plan our way. And, uh, and, and so I, I have, I've developed a habit of laying out a calendar, a preaching schedule for the year. He said, I think that's a great idea. And I said, so Al, here's my question. If in my preparation, as I work through my study breaks and study days and everything, I get to the point that I don't think my schedule was properly laid out, I think I need to change it somewhat, I think I need to clarify it, I maybe need to add something or subtract something or combine something, is it okay for me to do that? Now remember, Al, the Holy Spirit led me to lay out that calendar. Is it okay if I think the Holy Spirit is leading me to modify the calendar? He said, well, Harry, I'm going to tell you two things. Number one, pray about it. Number two, get some counsel from godly people. And then number three, if you're convinced the Holy Spirit is leading you, go ahead and change your calendar. Uh, what you had will still be there. What you're putting in there, if, he didn't, if you didn't get it right, he can always change it and get you back on track. 
I said, okay, sounds pretty good to me. I said, now I got a second question. What if it doesn't happen a month or three months before, but the very week I'm preparing for that next sermon on the calendar? What if it happens then? He said, "Uh, my advice hasn't changed. Pray about it. Get some godly counsel. And if the Holy Spirit, I, I said, now wait. I've already been studying and have notes on the sermon I was supposed to preach. But now I feel like I'm led to preach something else. He said, let me finish. Pray about it. Uh, Pray about it. And if you still feel the Lord is leading you and you get the counsel of others, then go ahead and change the sermon. Don't worry about it. You change the sermon and uh, your notes that you've done by the Holy Spirit for this week that now will become notes that the Holy Spirit has helped you do for next week. So don't worry about it. Just go with it and let the Spirit of God lead you in this. So now that's exactly what happened last week. <laughs> exactly. I was going to be in Romans 6 after two weeks in Romans 5, verses um, 12 through um, uh, 21. And I was on my way, and you have no idea how much I want to get to Romans 6, because I believe that Romans 6 is actually a microcosm of the whole epistle of Romans. The epistle of Romans, this exposition, Holy Spirit-inspired exposition of the gospel of, and listen carefully, of how Paul refers to the gospel in the book of Romans, the gospel of God. It's a Trinitarian gospel. It is a gospel where the Father has authored our salvation, the Son has accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit has applied it. This is the gospel of God. And as the gospel of God, he is expounding it for us. And Romans 6 truly is a distillation of the entire exposition in Romans. It's all right there in Romans chapter 6. And I can't wait to get to it, but the Lord uh, just worked on my heart this week. And we are going to wait to get to Romans 6 till next week. And we're back in Romans 5. Last time, I think, in Romans chapter 5, right here in these little verses, right here in front of us that I just read for you. Let me give you some reasons why we're staying there and what the Lord laid on my heart and why we're here. Number one is this. uh, The reason why he kind of laid it on my heart was... um, Well, for me, it was pretty obvious that last week in preaching through Romans 5, I dealt with the verses 18 through 21, but honestly, I wasn't comfortable. They needed better treatment and more treatment than I was able to give it. I'll give you a second reason. You really can't understand Romans 6 without Romans 18 through 21. I mean, we're about to ask a question in Romans 6. What is it? Shall we sin that grace may, anybody know the next word? Abound. That verse is built upon what is stated but misused by some in Romans 5, 18 through 21. There is a glorious truth of the abounding grace of God greater than our sin that he is affirming in Romans 5, 18 through 21. But some people would misuse that in order to encourage sin and say that Paul actually opened the door for them to do that. 
Why would they say that sinfully? Why would they say that? And what would be our answer to that? Well, to understand that in Romans 6, we need to understand very clearly what Romans 5, 18 through 21 is saying. Then, third reason why. In this passage is an amazing statement that on the face of it seems extraordinarily complex and even baffling. And that statement, I tried to read it slowly just a moment ago. That statement is, and the law came in. The law came in. That sin might increase. Why would we want sin to increase? More precisely, why would God send his law for the purpose of sin increasing? What is that actually saying to us? Why is it there and why did God do it? And what does it mean that the law came in? So go back with me to this section just a little bit. Romans um, Romans 5 verses 18 through 21 begins with that wonderful preacher's word. The preachers like me who, who, can, who like to preach uh, what we call consecutively through the Bible and verses of the Bible, uh, we want to make sure that we always keep things in context. And every once in a while, particularly the Apostle Paul, loves to put this word in there. Look at verse 18, therefore... In other words, what you are about to study is built upon what I've already said. And by the way, you can't understand what you're about to read and what you're about to study without understanding what goes before it. It's what goes before it that laid the groundwork for what you're about to study. Therefore, therefore attaches us to what went before it. And we have spent quite some time on it and we're working our way through it. We start off with that glorious theme verse of the book of Romans that gospel of God in Romans 1 and Romans 1, 16 and 17, where we have that glorious statement that Paul was eager and not ashamed to preach the gospel, not ashamed of the gospel, which is two things. It is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's a growing relationship relationship by the power of the gospel based upon not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God. And that gospel reveals the power of God's grace to save us and the righteousness that comes not from us, but from God through his son for us. But there's something else that he says. Now, let me explain to you why this is so important. And then he begins in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. And in verses 118, all the way through the end of that chapter, the wrath of God revealed against the pagan Gentile. And then the wrath of God revealed against the religious Gentile, beginning in chapter 2. And then the wrath of God revealed against the Jew. Why? And he says, here's why. And he sums it up in 323. All Jew and Gentile have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Where all of us are born helpless, hopeless, unwilling to give glory to God, unable to give glory to God, 
unwilling to repent of our sins and come to him, unable to come to him, dead in our sins. There is, and I quote from chapter 3, none who seek him. No, not one. All have turned aside to their own way. We are dead in our sins, facing physical and everlasting death under the condemnation of those sins. But God has the solution. And in chapter 4 and verse 5, he begins to unfold that solution, that solution of God's glorious saving grace that is found in Jesus Christ, that glorious that brings all kind of gospel blessings. In chapter 5, it begins to list, list those blessings. We have peace with God because of Christ when we're in Christ. We are now saved from our sins. We have peace with God. We have, secondly, access to God. We have, thirdly, we can rejoice in our sufferings for God. Fourthly, we can rejoice in the glory of God. And fifthly, we are signed and sealed and secured by the Spirit of God. And then... He begins to answer for us a question that's got to be in our minds. Why is it every single person born in this world is born a sinner and actually sins and all die? No exceptions apart from divine intervention. Why is it all, everyone, go to Asia, go to South America, go to Africa, North America, Europe, Australia, go wherever you want to go, wherever you go, everyone, without exception, born a sinner, sins and dies. Why is that true? And secondly, why are we assured that all who are in Christ have everlasting life, and to quote our Savior, Father, all whom you've given me, I lose not one. How is it that there is assurance of salvation for all who are in Christ? Well, chapter 5, he answers that question. Oh, my goodness, what a challenging time that we've spent in Romans chapter 5, but it was so important to be there. Because he gives the answers to that. He says, let me tell you why. You can know that everyone is born a sinner in need of a Savior, that they actually sin, and why you can know that they all face death. It is appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. Because, he says, of something called federalism. That federalism that we took time to study is the one acting for the many. You encounter it constantly because in the founding of this country, they reached into these biblical principles and used some and all of the imperfections of this country, but they used something in the system of government called federalism, even wrote papers on it, the Federalist Papers. And what is it? You elect a representative, and when that representative acts, you act. When they vote, you vote. When they act, you act. 
fact. You, the one is acting for the many through that election. And what the Bible tells us is not through our election, not through our desires, but by divine appointment, God has appointed the one for the many. And when Adam sinned, we sinned. And when Adam disobeyed God, we disobeyed God. And his sin is now imputed to us and we are born as sinners. There is Adam and he is our federal head and this, but then the amazing statement that's right in chapter five is one of the reasons you got Adam as the, as the federal head is because he's a type of one to come greater. And that's the second Adam. And that's Christ. And when Christ died the atoning death for all the sins of all of his people, for all of eternity, it's because the one died for the many. Did you read what just, it just said? Through the disobedience of the one, the many died, the all died. Through the obedience of the one, the all are made alive. Well, wait just a minute, Pastor. Does that mean everybody is lost and everybody gets saved? No, no, no. Because here's what we found out. There's two Adams and there's two alls. There is Adam and his all, which is humanity. There is Christ and his all, which are those whom the Father has given to him. Who will lay a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, rather, who is raised and who is at the right hand of the Father, who intercedes right now for his people, you, if you know him. And so just as the Bible says, through one man came death to all, and through another came life to all. Christ and those who belong to Christ. So here is the first Adam. He sins and we all sinned in him and with him. Then here is the second Adam who is Christ. And through his perfect righteousness, his, now watch, our sins were reckoned to his account and he paid for them on the cross before the Father under divine judgment and the unmixed wrath of God for all of our sins. Then his righteousness is appointed to us. Thus in Adam, the gates of hell are shut because he has paid the penalty. And when he said, Tetelestai, it's finished, it was done, paid in full. And not only are the gates of hell shut, the gates of heaven are open because we are accepted in the beloved. We have given to us the perfect righteousness of Christ. And every time God looks at us, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. So here is the summation, the explanation of the one for the many federalism and the imputation of the sin to Christ who pays for our sins and then the imputation of his righteousness to us so that we have the ownership of an alien righteousness that doesn't come from us but that takes us all the way to glory in Christ. We have, as we learned in Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God himself. And thus we stand innocent, not just forgiven, innocent 
before the bar of God's justice. And then this text gives us this statement of divine intervention. Go with me again. Go back to, go down to, go down to, we've looked at the summation. We've looked at the explanation. Look down to verse 20. Now, now, all right, after all of that's established, why we're all sinners, original sin. Now listen, let's get this straight. Can can I get your attention just a minute? I probably shouldn't do it this way. I ought to be a smarter preacher than this. But let me get your attention. All right, you ready? Original sin does not refer to the first sin. The term original sin refers to why you sin. It refers to the origin of sin. And that's the disobedience of Adam. No, don't send me an email and we can discuss as to whether the fruit was an apple or not. That's really not the issue. It was the transgression against the divine commandment. And in that transgression came the origin of sin and all actual sin. It originates in that sin. And so now understanding that, the origin of sin in Adam and the origin of saving grace in the second Adam, Christ, Now, understanding that, we are confronted with this statement. Now, with that in mind, now the law came in. The law. What is he referring to? All right, very quickly. He is referring to the Pentateuch. Particularly, obviously, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He is referring to God's ceremonial law given through Moses. The law of of God as given uh, through the authorship of Moses, the law of Moses. And here is this, here is this law. It is, first of all, it is a ceremonial law. It governs the worship of God's people. It's got the offerings. It's got the sacrifices. It's got the days of sacrifice. It's got the feast. It's got the fast. It's got everything in it that governs the worship of a covenant people before their God. And in it, God is saying something in his law. Ceremonial law. Then he's got the civil law. And the civil law is that governing law that restrains sin and that promotes righteousness among God's covenant people. There's only been one time in all of you, in all of history, and there will only be one time that God has any one nation as his covenant people, and that was Israel. Now his covenant people in the new covenant are coming from all the nations. And thus, we have no theocratic nation. We have God's kingdom from all the nations. And the embassy of the kingdom, his church, which is given its mission, its message, and its ministry to carry forth into this world. And not only is there the ceremonial law, not only is there the civil law, In Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Exodus, not only is that there, but also there's God's apodictic, his ethical, his absolute law, based upon his character, designed to tell us how we made in the image of God are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind, and how we are to love our neighbor as ourself. It is that law. Now notice, that law did what? It came. It wasn't thought up. 
It wasn't discovered. It wasn't developed. It came. God's law came from God. It is a gift of God's grace to us, and it has a divine purpose. The law came. Now stop and think about that phrase. The law came in. The book of Genesis informs us how sin came in. Original sin through Adam. The whole New Testament is pointing us to a Messiah who will come because God so loves the world, he'll give his only begotten son. Which is why Paul tells Timothy, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save, somebody finish that for me, sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. You shall call his name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Who are his people? They are sinners to be saved by the sovereign grace of God. But before he comes in, God sends the law. The law came in. Why would that law come in? Why would that law be manifested, that moral law, that ceremonial law, that civil law? Why does it come in? The text tells you there's something in the Greek called a purpose clause. Now, this is a very interesting purpose clause. It is a very interesting purpose clause because the purpose sets up another purpose. It says this, the law came in that the trespass or the sin, that the trespass or the sin might increase, or another translation, abound. The law came in that the sin might abound, might increase. God, why would you want to send your law that the sin would increase, that the sin would abound? He says, this is why. Because that purpose clause that gives you why the law came tells you the purpose of the purpose. And the purpose of the purpose he gives in the very next statement. Read it. Look at it with, look at it with me. Romans chapter 5. One more time. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, so that as sin Here's a phrase, reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the law comes in that the grace might be increased, uh, that this, I'm sorry, that the law comes in as a gift of God's grace that sin might increase And in the increasement of sin becomes the increasing testimony of the greatness of God's grace. Now listen, follow me on this. It's not the law comes and sin increases 
And over here, in response, grace increases. So we've got sin increasing, grace increasing. Wonder who's going to win. That is not the text. The text is very clear. The repetition of phrase like more, much more, etc. Reign. Rule. Triumph. God gives his law that the sin might be seen. He gives his ceremonial law that sin, and it comes in right into your canon. Genesis, here comes Jesus. What comes first? Pentateuch. God's law first gets there. Why? It's God's, this is why it is, listen, there's a gigantic, gigantic need to understand the gospel use of the law. The law is not the gospel, but the law is crucial for the gospel to be heard amazing and responded to. You can't get to good news until you understand the bad news. And that's why the law comes. The bad news is magnified, identified, brought before us, and the law even incites it. And what, what does that do when that happens? Let me, let me just do it this way. Here is the ceremonial law. And they keep coming back. Here's this sacrifice. Here's that sacrifice. Here's this sacrifice. Here's this washing. Here's that washing. Here's that ritual cleansing. Here we do it today. We do it the next day. We do it the day after that. Here's the day of atonement. Then you got atonement. And then you got sacrifices every day. And there's a sacrifice for me. And I bring it. Then I have to bring another one. Then I bring another one. Then I bring another one. And over here is a priest that takes it in. But that priest needs his own sacrifice. I need a priest who doesn't need a sacrifice. And the law says I need that priest. And the law says I need a sacrifice that does it once and for all. Bulls, goats, pigeons are used to teach me we need a sacrifice for us. But they can't do it. But God's got his son coming. And when that day of atonement comes and all of the gore and the entrails, I'll be careful. I know lunch is around the corner. All the gore, the entrails. And on that day, the Kidron Brook runs red with blood. God's law is telling you sin brings death. Sin brings death upon death. And these sacrifices can't do it. That's why they're repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated. And when you see the gore and the entrails all over the priest, sin cost. It's not some little private peccadillo. It cost. And the cost will be God's son. To save us from that sins. And that civil law is telling us. We can restrain sin with the law. But the law can't save you from your sin. We got a heart problem. In fact the law not only. Not law not only shows us that sin. The law shows us just how sinful we are. Folks you want to. You want somebody to run a red light. Put one up. 
You want to see somebody run a stop sign? Put one in the ground. We not only rebel against God's law, we are ultimately rebelling against God himself, which is why his law incites us. You won't tell us what's good for us. We will tell you. You won't tell us what a marriage is. We'll tell you. You won't tell us about honoring fathers and mothers. We'll tell you. And you see with the law, not only the law revealed, not only the sin revealed, but the sin nature revealed. As its very presence incites to more and more sin before him. And then as this sin comes, it's to show you grace is greater. In other words... The law that reveals sin and points to the solution in Christ alone. Because the law has no power to save. The law can only show us that we're helpless and hopeless and enemies and weak and incapable of saving ourselves. All we want to do is rebel against God unless God's grace restrains it or unless God's grace transforms us. So it points to something and that something has to be greater. In other words, it's not here's sin revealed, here's grace revealed wonder who's going to win here's sin re- here's what it is sin is revealed grace is revealed and no contest it's not a comparative it's a superlative god's grace is greater than our sin where sin reigns god's grace does much more reign there is more grace in christ than sin in me. And that's my hope. That alone is my hope. That alone is my desire. Is that glorious grace. Well, I am out of time, so let me give you the takeaway, and then we can close. The law came in. Result, sin comes out, increases. The law comes in as a gift of God's grace to point us to grace by pointing out our sin. Our sin is identified and revealed. It shows us the sinfulness of sin. Look at how much it cost. It shows and reveals to us our sin nature because the very law that teaches us how to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and mind and as our neighbors, ourself, actually incites us to more self-absorption and idolatry and becomes the occasion of expressing our sin nature. And all of that is there so that we might by God's grace flee to our Savior and be saved. To be saved from the power of sin. To be saved from the penalty of sin. To be saved from the very practices of sin. To be saved one day from the presence of sin. 
God's God's law has been revealed to show us, reveal to us, identify our sin and the sinfulness of sin and our sin nature to point us to Christ. And it is this Christ who will, if you'll turn it over, please. It was this Christ who to whom we flee that in his abounding grace saves us from the power of sin, saves us from the penalty of sin, all of its guilt, all of its shame. He eradicates increasingly saves us from the practices of sin and on that day when he comes back will save us even from the presence of sin we are seeing that grace is more that's found in Christ and Christ then reigns by grace in our life unto his righteousness and unto eternal life and folks believe me in this day Just allow me these moments. This day, in these days, we are in a battle for this gospel of saving grace in Christ. Oh, we in the evangelical church gladly hold on to those declarative blessings that God will save us in justification from the penalty of sin, the guilt of sin, the shame of sin, so that we are forgiven of our sin and clothed with his righteousness. And we gladly preach that he takes us from the position of sin and adopts us into his family so that we can call him our father but strangely missing today is the declaration and the promise the same God who has a triumphant reigning grace to make sinners right with God and innocent and justified and make sinners in the family of God is the same grace that makes new creations out of sinners that you're born again That you not only have a new record and a new family, you've got a new heart. And if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has become. Now, please listen carefully, because every time I do this, somebody from the back row, uh, not that back row, but somebody from some back row back there uh, somewhere will say, oh, he's teaching perfectionism. Of course, I'm not teaching perfectionism. I've read my Bible. I'm fully aware of my Bible. I'm fully aware of the Bible. It says if any man says that he hasn't sinned, he's a liar and the truth is not within him. I know Christians have remaining sin but what we don't have is reigning sin over us that's what we don't have it's been broken there's a new king a new majesty a new reign and it's christ and yes i've got sin in me and i've got sin living in me but i don't have to live in sin and the grace of god is not simply a therapeutic means of coping with sin in my life We don't have a gospel of cope. We have a gospel of hope. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He cancels sin. Praise God. Justification and adoption. And he breaks the power of canceled sin. Praise God. Regeneration. You can be born again. And then when you're born again comes the glorious growth of grace whereby we begin to hunt down remaining sin to kill it because we love our Savior who saves us from it. We don't have a gospel that allows us to manage remaining sin. We have a gospel with the instruments To mortify and put to death remaining sin.
from the roots up. Recently, I was reading something where the individual said concerning a particular addictive sin that he's been a Christian for three decades, but the needle hasn't moved in terms of that particular sin. Well, I think if that person was in my congregation, I would say to them, If the needle hasn't moved, there's one of three possibilities. You don't know how to read a a moving needle. It has moved. You just don't think it's moved. Or number two, you don't understand the work of discipleship and full contact discipleship that begins to take the means of grace to go after that sin that the needle might move. Or you're not converted. The reality is. The old passes away. The new comes. Perfection will. But listen. I know Romans 7. We're on our way to Romans 7. The evil I would not do. I find myself doing. We're going. We're going to understand that. But notice the change. Before I'm converted. It's the evil I would do. After I'm converted. I've still got sin that I don't want to do. The wanter's been changed. And I got the means of grace. And some of those remaining addictive entangling sins, when God said, listen, go read 1 Corinthians 6, 6 through 11. If you read that, you'll find a number of sins that were embedded in my life. Some of them, the day I was converted, gone. Gone, gone, gone. Yes, they're gone. Some of them I've been battling by God's grace for 50 plus years. Yes, he microwaves in sanctification some sins out and he crockpots others. You go to a, I got a great doctor here, skin doctor. You go, he sees that cancer. Some of it he cuts out. Others he gives you this thing and it burns out. You rub it on and rub it on and rub it on and it burns it out. Well, folks, that's the way we deal with sin. Sin is not something that we manage. It's something we declare war against in our life. Not to be saved, but for our Savior and our hatred of that sin. And we certainly don't identify with it. We're called to war against it. And as we go to war against it, Sometimes God just reaches in and rips it out. Sometimes he says, let's go to war every day until I bring you home. Then the presence of sin will be gone. But we're going to war like that dermatologist. He gives me that stuff and I got a place on my head. I keep rubbing it, rubbing it, rubbing it, rubbing it. And it disappears. So you take the means of grace and you get under, and if you got sin that's embedded in your life, get under regularly the faithful preaching of God's word, fellowship, God-centered worship, intercessory prayer, right administration of the sacraments, be engaged in the means of grace, those brothers and sisters who will disciple you and shepherd you, get into it and watch God bring the sin corrosive power of the means of grace that is greater in your sin and don't lose heart stay fixed on Jesus his grace is greater than our sin don't sign any peace treaties with sin don't identify with it 
You know, when I go, when I go into minister to people who's lost a loved one and I step in a morgue, I hate a morgue. It's Satan's trophy room. He was a murderer from the beginning. But I got a savior who empties not just morgues, but graves. And he raises the spiritually dead to life and you can be born again. He causes us to be born again to a living hope. And it is that gospel that we preach and that gospel that we hold to and that gospel that we proclaim. And God's grace in Christ is gloriously triumphant over any and all sin in me. That's why he sent that law to send me to Jesus so that the trophy room of sin will be emptied. And the trophy room of God will be filled. We are his workmanship. Created by Christ Jesus. By the grace of God. To the glory of God. Praise his name forever. Father, thank you for the moments to be together in your word. Oh God, please speak to the hearts of my very patient friends that are here today. Brothers and sisters and perhaps some seekers. Perhaps some have come here today to find out how do I deal with all of this culture of death. Death is all around. Father, help them hear it comes from sin. And help them hear that your grace is greater than our sin. And help them come to Jesus. If you'd like to pray with someone, there would be some brothers and sisters up here at the front afterwards. If you'll just make your way up. To pray with them about your life in Christ or giving your life to Christ. Please feel free to do that today. We invite you to Jesus. Oh, what a great Savior. Fairest Lord Jesus. Beautiful Savior. Then, Father, would you equip your people to walk in the triumph of Christ. Knowing that when sin abounds... Your grace does much more about. Thank you for the perfect righteousness of Christ. And thank you for the power to follow Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.